did you get paid? 70 cents. 70 cents a day? Every two weeks. Every two weeks, you got 70 cents. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new documentary podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. These are real stories. When someone makes a call and says, we have a bed for you, we don't have a home for you, we have a bed for you. Coming February 2022. Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Wack a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewack.libsyn.com. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Houston. Hello. And today we are doing an encore episode where we re-release one of our favorite previous episodes. And uh, that episode today is going to be our two-part series on consumer electronics. So laptops, smartphones, gaming systems, really Anything that has a lot of metal and plastic in it and goes beep boop. (laughs) Yeah, we ended up doing kind of like a tech month by accident where we talked to gender troubles from the Harbinger Media Network about the ethics of porn and the porn industry. And we were also joined by Paris Marks, also from the Harbinger Media Network of Tech Won't Save Us, to discuss their new book about the future of transportation called The Road to Nowhere. And we read a book about surveillance capitalism with our good friend Robert Miller, and we talk about that as well. So to gear up for all of that, uh, we're just going to go ahead and remind everyone of what the tech industry kind of looks like at the root level. Yeah, the like physical part of tech. (laughs) (laughs) We talk a lot about like, um, I mean, we've already released the porn episode, and it's a lot about like how tube sites work. The episode with Robbie is a lot about like data stealing and surveillance. And then, you know, the one with Paris is a little bit back into the physical world. We talk about Uber and things like that. But in these episodes, we're actually talking about like how physically electronics get made and uh, what happens to the people that are behind it and also what happens to you know, the environment when we're trying to pull the stuff out of the ground that we need to actually produce electronics. Yeah, which is just a really good base level for understanding not just the problems in those particular industries, but some other aspects of those issues that like we don't discuss. And it's just a really good foundation. And uh, we hope you enjoy it. I don't know if you notice this, but I have been putting off electronics as an episode for pretty much a year now because I do not understand how computers work at all. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) How the hell am I going to research the ethics of these things? But it turns out um, for most of it, you don't really need to know what the components are. So. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) But essentially, uh, just to give you guys a rundown on what you're going to get, we've got two episodes that are going to look at the ethics behind consumer electronics. So today we're going to focus on human rights and consumer electronics, and then the next episode will focus on the environment, um, and it'll also look at e-waste a little bit. 
And then we thought it would also be helpful to do an episode on conflict minerals specifically, because that's a huge topic in um, not only for the electronics industry, but also for other industries like jewelry. Um, and so we'll, we'll do that afterwards. Uh, and then we'll do an interview episode on e-waste. Nice. I hope we'll actually do that. So <laughs> <laughs> now, now we're held to it. Yeah, no, nobody, nobody remember this. I feel like at the end of our series, nobody's going to remember what we said at the beginning of it. That's absolutely true. We'll be breaking down electronics into several different episodes. Uh, so if you get to the end of this part and you're like, I'm not really clear on what we do, <laughs> it's because that's coming later. So stay tuned. For some reason, I thought the best way to start this was to just observe that most of the consumer electronics that are ubiquitous today didn't exist 50 years ago. So I wasted a couple of hours looking at when different kinds of electronics were invented because I thought it was interesting personally. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe talk a little bit about that. Um, the first television uh, was produced in 1929. So it was pretty old. Uh, the first electrical computer was pretty shortly after that, 1938. So like, Prior to the, the Second World War, you do have like some of these technologies that are starting to be produced, but like nobody had a computer in the 30s. There weren't personal computers until 1974, really. So like it's really only since the 70s that we start to have um, electronics other than televisions and radios that are in our houses. That's less than 100 years old. I know, it's wild. It's uh. I mean, if you think about it, like on the arc of time with the plastic bag, it's about the same oh, amount of time. That's true. <laughs> and like, I know that I know that computers aren't that like, I know that they're really new, but it's just it's sometimes it, it like, they feel so ingrained in our daily lives that it's, it's easy to forget like, oh, yeah, my great grandmother remembers a time before computers, you know, or even my, well, my grandma was my grandma's pretty young, but definitely my great grandma. <laughs> Okay, I want you to Google the Magnavox Odyssey. Have you ever seen that video game console before? No. Was that your first console? No, I, I, I was not alive when this came out. It's <laughs> the first video game console that um, was sold, and it was, came out in 1972. Okay, I'm excited to see this. One second. Magnavox Odyssey. Oh. <laughs> what did it do? <laughs> Uh, not a lot. So the weird thing about this console, I don't know if what you've found on Google shows you this. It basically all it did was flash lights because it was so old. And it had like a ping pong game and a couple of other games. But instead of actually having video game graphics, because it couldn't do that, you had to place these like plastic overlays over top of your television and it just like stuck there and it provided the frame for whatever you were doing. <laughs> So like they had one that was like a haunted house, they had a tennis court, a hockey rink, stuff like that. And like whatever game you were playing, you had to put the plastic sheet up. Otherwise, it would just be like lights. <laughs> and you like twisted the device forward and backward to choose direct. It's very weird. Um, super old game. I, I think it like shows the distance in really like about 50 years we've gotten from that to video game graphics are so good now um, that... It practically look real. Or even like virtual reality has really... Yeah, God. Uh, have you ever used a, vir a virtual reality machine or glasses? 
I haven't. No, have you? I have. One of my friends like built a full rig and I played with it for maybe two hours and it was incredible. <laughs> so yeah. you know what I think is funny? Um, I was thinking about this the other day, but like Star Trek imagines these like hollow decks where like the room is what creates the environment. It's like, bros, just put the goggles on over your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> you dummies. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, the first uh, video game console, if you can really call it that, it was a box with flashing lights, um, was 1972. (laughs) The first mobile phone, do you think it was before or after the Magnavox Odyssey? Um, Oh my god, and the Odyssey (laughs) came out in 1974, you said? 1972. I would think that the cell phone would come after it? It is, yeah. This was actually a super (sighs) tricky question because it came the next year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was just being tricksy. Wow, they were th- that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so Motorola released the first mobile phone in 1973 and the first digital camera came out 2 years later. So things are starting to speed up in the 70s. It's the the decade of technology. Uh then the Sony Walkman rounds out the decade becoming the first portable music player and It's one of the earliest wearable technologies, if you want to think about it in that way. And then the first laptop comes out in the early 80s. It was very heavy. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, then you have um, in 1992, there's the first smartphone. um, But really, the first smartphone that everybody thinks about is the iPhone that comes out in 2001. or Sorry, in 2007. um, And the iPod comes out in 2001. I was like, wait a second. (laughs) Mixed up the Apple products. The first iPod comes out in 2001 and the first iPhone comes out in 2007. So, I mean, I guess we had most of these things by like the end of the 80s, but they weren't good until, I mean, are they good now? I don't know. They're pretty good now. (laughs) See what we say in 10 years. Um, But yeah. I I just want to like, I wanted to give that history because um, a lot of the context you've got to give to the industry, um, I think is partially framed around how quickly technologies change, right? If you think about like cell phones coming out, like really not being in popular use until the 90s, and then smartphones kind of getting introduced in like the mid 2000s and getting better and better and better all the time, like what we'll talk about a lot in this episode is how like the short time frame of technology um, creates a lot of problems in the industry. But it's also kind of understandable when you have these like big leaps in the functionality of technology happening in the last couple of decades. Although, frankly, I think lately that's slowed down, but I'm also not a tech wonk, so <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't know. My most, I have an iPhone. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Um, and it is pretty much the same as previous iPhones I've had, you know. So what are in electronics? That was something that I wondered. I was like, probably metal and plastic was what I guessed. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, that is true. Um, so electronics are made up of plastic, um, silicon, and then also like just a really wide array of chemical elements, um, including metals and also rare earth elements. So we'll talk about those because they end up being important to the ethics. Silicon, though, is really important to electronics because they're the backbone of microchips. Oh my god, is that why it's called Silicon Valley? (laughs) 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 Am I supposed to 
supposed to have known that? Is anyone else discovering this for the very first time? Please, please tweet me and let us know at Pullback Podcast because I am shook right now. Oh, man. Yes, yeah, that's probably why it's called that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they're a really important component of microchips. Um, basically, they're like the frame on which you print the like electronic circuits. So, like, you have to get... Um, what's called a, a silicon wafer. I don't remember exactly how that's made, but silicon is basically sand. And so it's it's like a refined version of sand, basically. So that is one of the most important materials when it comes to consumer electronics or electronics of any kind. And fun fact, there are more than 634 billion microchips manufactured annually. <laughs> so Oh, I think I saw that statistic recently because there was a shortage on microchips like in the last three weeks and people were saying it was going to grind, like the planet was going to grind to a halt and and I was like, whoa. <laughs> but yeah, it's because they make so many microchips. If you can't make them anymore, it's like, actually, that is a problem. Yes. Um, and I didn't look up anything on the, the microchip shortage, but I have also heard that's a thing. Sorry, listeners, if that's really important. <laughs> <laughs> Tweet us angrily about that, too. <laughs> Absolutely. So one of the challenges that I came across in researching for this episode is um, that there are so many fucking things in electronics. Uh, so, for example, the average smartphone has about 70 chemical elements in it. So I don't really know what you do with that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty... I'm not going to go through all 70, and plus, I th that's just one smartphone. You know, every smartphone is probably made up of different things, and then laptops are made of different things, and TVs, and video game consoles, you know? It would get really overwhelming. Um, so what I thought I would do is kind of, like, talk about some of the major categories as they come up in the ethical issues. And one of the things that's really important to talk about is um, what's called rare earth elements. Um, had you ever heard of those before? Yes, but I probably because you told me about them because you actually did a whole bunch of research on this in the past, right? Yeah. So rare earth elements, um, they're called that because at the time they thought they were really rare, but turns out they're actually not so rare. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're really essential to modern technology. And there are different reasons because there are basically 17 rare earth elements. Um, and they're elements that are common in low concentrations in the Earth's crust. So at one time, we kind of thought they only were present in one place, but now we know they're present all over the place, just in low concentrations. And those 17 elements do a whole bunch of like different things. They have a different conductive properties, different magnetic properties, different phosphorescent properties. And so those different properties mean that you can use them in different ways in technology. So if you want like a screen that flashes with different colors, you use different rare earth elements, you know, um, something, something conductivity. I don't know how electronics work, but you know, you need, you need the different features of different earth, rare earth elements to be able to um, produce different things in your phone. So for example, um, I don't remember which one of them this is, but one of the rare earth elements allows your phone to vibrate, you know? Wow. Yeah. And it's just like the properties of the rare earth elements that are different that help them to do different things. But Well, I just learned that alchemy is real. <laughs> <laughs> and it really does do magic. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure people who are like engineers would be like very upset with me about the way I've described this, because I'm sure there's a perfectly reasonable way that they, they make them vibrate. But the point being that you need um 
you need a lot of elements um, in electronics because you need them to, like, they're really complicated. You need them to be able to do a bunch of different things. Um, so I tried to, I always, when I'm researching this episode, I always try to, to look at what the supply chain is, um, even though that's often really boring. I think it's really important to understanding what the, you know, ethical problems that might be run into are. And that this is where, like, I ran into my first problem with electronics. Um, <laughs> you know, we thought that the clothing series was complicated, but electronics are just, they themselves are so complex that the supply chains are orders of magnitude more complicated than any of the other products we've discussed on the podcast so far. But I'll try to sort of go through basically how it works. So the first step and something we'll talk a lot about in um, the first two parts of the series are um, each of the like raw materials themselves um, have to be mined and processed. So think about like those 70 different materials in going into your smartphone. All of those get mined and refined in a multi-step process. So, you know, those are all separate, complicated things that are happening. But if we'll just summarize them as they get they get mined and refined, and then the raw materials are brought to build um, electronic components. Can you maybe, at this point, it might be helpful for you to describe, like, what generally is in a computer? What are the sort of main things so people can get a sense? Yes, I'd be happy to do that. When you're building a computer, it's generally the same principles for whether you're building a laptop or a desktop. You need basically the same things. They just come in different sizes. So the first thing you need is a case the thing that everything goes inside and holds it all together. Then you're going to need a motherboard and a processor. The processor is the brain of your computer and the motherboard is like the spine and the, the nervous system. Everything connects to it and they all react to each other because of the way that they're connected to the motherboard. I <laughs> am going to have a great time describing the rest of this. <laughs> I, I feel like I should give some credentials here. <laughs> I... I built and repaired and sold computers for three years. I started as a salesperson, then I moved on to be a tech for a while, and then went back to sales. So I actually do know what I'm talking about. I'm just <laughs> like not all there tonight. The next thing you're going to want for your computer is memory or random access memory. So other people call it RAM. And that I always describe to people is kind of like your table. Uh, the more RAM you have, the bigger your table is, the more things you can do at once. I'm sure that engineers are going to hate that description as well. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next thing you're going to want is your hard drive. That's where you store all of your pictures and music and programs and your operating system. And the next thing you're going to want is mm, your motherboard's going to come equipped with like a sound card and most of them will come equipped with a video card and lots of them will come equipped with like a wireless chip. So your motherboard will have built-in processes to give you Wi-Fi and video and sound. But if you have a really shitty <laughs> motherboard or a really small one like me, you have to get external pieces for those as well. So your video card is like a second motherboard processor RAM unit. So it's like a computer inside a computer so that you can play all of those great VR video games. And then the sound card and the wireless internet card basically is what people want. And then your power supply to make it all run. And different power supplies can run different setups. Pretty easy stuff. 
And then you can like add things for fun, you know, like, oh, because you, you can't just have a computer. You also need a keyboard and a mouse and speakers and <laughs> monitors to see stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you're getting a laptop, that's built into the case, but still, like, woof. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you take all of the elements that are um, like the originally raw materials, they get mined, they get refined. And then they go to make that big jumble of components, many of which are like made by, it's not necessarily all separate companies, but usually there are like hardware component manufacturers that will make certain elements. And it gets confusing because some of those hardware manufacturers are also like the, like the branded uh, computer producers that like also sell you the stuff. And then there's also operating system and software developers that are also sometimes in hardware as well. So the companies are all jumbled up, but the process is basically you get raw materials, you make raw materials not suck, you bring raw materials to make components, you put components together through like an assembly factory, and then you like send it to stores and sell it, or you send it to telecoms companies who sell it that way too. <laughs> What you might notice in that system is there's a lot of subcontracting that happens throughout that process. So if you're like a big company like like Apple, for example, they use over 750 suppliers to build their products. Like that's a massive number of companies you're contracting to. So like in our clothing episode, we talk about how subcontracting really makes transparency and accountability difficult because you're not quite sure like who's cutting your cloth and whatever. You magnify that problem by like a hundred if you're dealing with electronics because there are so many components. And that's where a lot of the problems come in, that and the fact that we don't have electronic devices for a very long time. So human rights abuses largely occur in the mining and manufacturing stages of the supply chain. It's not so much like the people that are at the, the end of the supply chain that are dealing with human rights issues, although I'm sure pay at some of these um, stores is not great. But the big human rights abuses occur mostly sort of at the beginning stages, the mining, the manufacturing, the assembly. Um, and so that's how I'm going to organize the human rights section. We'll start by talking about mining, then we'll talk about manufacturing. Just a note that I am not going to talk about every raw material in this episode. So um, we'll focus on just a few that have been the subject of activism and uh, talk about general principles. And if you want to research like cobalt mines or copper mines afterwards, like go off, <laughs> you know. <laughs> a lot of the mining issues, like there'll be egregious human rights abuses at like this one Zambian copper mine or like something somewhere else. Um, so what I've tried to do is talk about broadly what happens in mining. I did look up where key materials were mined. I'm not going to go through a list of those, but... Um, China is a big producer of most of the really important uh, raw materials that go into electronics. So they're a country that definitely plays a big role. Australia is also a big mining company that's one of the lead producers on a number of them. The United States comes up a few times, Peru, Russia, India, and Canada. So uh, those are some of the major mining countries. There are many more, though. So um, depending on what is being mined um, can really happen all over the world. So let's uh, start by talking about workers' rights in the mining industry. I think we'll maybe have to do an entire episode just looking at mining in the future. Um, I'm not going to give a super in-depth explanation, but 
It might not surprise listeners to find that mine workers often experience unsafe working conditions, low wages, and uh, abuses on the job like excessive working hours and union busting. Working conditions in mines, like historically, um, were tied to, in some cases, just outright, you know, slavery. And then in other cases, um, really abusive practices. And uh, as we've seen in like other industries where that's the case, um, industries like tea and chocolate, those practices are maybe not the same today, but like some of the same problems kind of carry forward. So um, I'll just give you an example. Uh, (laughs) One third of the world's tin comes from informal mines in Indonesia And uh, in Bangka, Indonesia, um, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, sorry, a worker dies in a landslide almost once per week because um, the practices are so bad there. Whoa, that is a lot of landslides. Yeah. I mean, it happens because um, if you're not managing the mines properly, they can be pretty unstable. So So, yeah, mines aren't particularly safe places to work. In addition to things like um, dying in a landslide, lack of protective equipment and safety protocols can expose mining workers as well as nearby communities to toxic chemicals. It's a really big problem. Um, And that can lead to a range of health impacts. So, for example, gold mines are actually the leading source of um, mercury air pollution in the United States uh, because mercury is used in part of the mining process. Mining operations have also been linked to child labor and forced labor. It really depends on where the mine is, um, what, like, who is the mine company that's involved, um, and what are the local laws, how stringent are they, how well are they enforced. Um, So it can really vary, but in a lot of places where mining occurs, it's cheap because there are not very strong environmental regulations. Another thing to note, um, we'll talk about this more in the third part of our series, but Mining can also, in some cases, be connected to funding conflicts. And one example of where that's true is in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So there's actually been a movement to eliminate conflict minerals from electronic supply chains. And we'll talk more about that in part three. All right. Do you want to talk about manufacturing? Let's do it. So like other industries, electronics components manufacturing and assembly have undergone a process of offshoring in recent decades. So Just to remind people what offshoring is, um, as sort of globalization has unfolded, it's um, the movement of manufacturing from close to where a product is sold to um, to sort of countries that have uh, weaker safety regulations, weaker worker regulations, and low wage labor. Uh, So that's definitely something that's happened in electronics industries. For example, semiconductor manufacturing actually moved offshore from the United States starting in the 1970s, and that was after there were reports that surfaced of contaminated drinking water that caused um, birth defects and cancer clusters among factory workers um, at different sites around the United States. So people started to agitate and start lawsuits about that because the United States actually had environmental protection laws and health and safety laws, and... uh, then semiconductor manufacturing moved. That's like a pretty common story in electronics is um, the problem with toxic chemicals and how it's harming human health and the environment. Um, It's a big problem in mining. It's also a big problem in electronics manufacturing. So today, a lot of the electronics manufacturing actually happens in China, but some of that production is being moved towards other um, Asian countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, and India. 
Um, basically, that's because wages in China are going up, and so wages are now cheaper in those countries. So offshoring is sort of one big trend, and it's pushed manufacturing out to Asian countries. But in addition to that, the short production cycles that a lot of these um, products are on have also fueled a rise in precarious work. One example of this is that Chinese assembly factories will use student interns as a source of cheap and flexible labor. You are allowed to do this under Chinese law, um, and, and they do pay the interns, but employees frequently violate laws around, or employers are frequently violating laws around overtime, and also you're only allowed to have a certain proportion of temporary and interns, um, temporary workers and interns in your um, assembly factories, and like in a lot of cases, these companies are just flagrantly violating those laws to sort of take advantage of cheap student labor, basically. So that's a big problem, um, precarity in electronics manufacturing. And as well, electronics manufacturing has been associated with child labor and also forced labor. One example is in 2020, Lenovo laptops um, that were going to a school district in Alabama, they actually got stopped at the border by the U.S. Department of Commerce because... Um, they had a connection with the use of Chinese forced labor in Xinjiang province, and there were sanctions against that. So that's just one example. Um, and in a lot of cases, this kind of stuff doesn't get caught, right? So Foxconn, have you heard of Foxconn before? Yes. Are they an internet company in the United States? They are not. Um, they're <laughs> a... They're, <laughs> it's okay, though. You, you know them associated with tech. Um, if people have heard of Foxconn before, they probably have heard of them um, associated with worker suicides about a decade ago. Oh, 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 I, uh, I, can I say that instead? <laughs> it happened 11 years ago, so <laughs> it's okay if you don't remember. Um, but some people listening might. So um, Foxconn's uh, more official name is Han High Precision Industry Co. Limited, um, but they're more commonly known as Foxconn, and they're the world's largest electronics manufacturer. So brands like Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, HP, Dell, Huawei, a bunch of other companies, they contract Foxconn to manufacture their products. So I'm going to talk about Foxconn because um, they're sort of the leading manufacturer and the problems that they have with their workers' rights is really central to understanding ethics in um, electronics. So Foxconn is it's a Taiwanese company and the single largest employer in mainland China. Um, they employ about 1.3 million people worldwide. And that means that actually they are the third largest employer worldwide. Um, only Walmart and McDonald's employ more people. Walmart and McDonald's are the biggest employers. <laughs> McDonald's, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised. There's, McDon there's McDonald's in every country. But Walmart, <laughs> I guess they have like subsidiary companies that have different names. I think like Asda in the UK is owned by Walmart, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. This isn't a Walmart episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's coming, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably, yeah. One of the interesting things about Foxconn, and this was particularly true like five to ten years ago, but it's still fairly true. A large portion of Foxconn's employees are at like a single mega site in um, the Chinese city of Shenzhen. And it's uh, known as either Foxconn City or the Longwa plant. And it's basically like this giant factory complex. And at a certain point, um, there were an estimated 450,000 employees working in this complex, just to give you a sense of how big it is. I think now they're not quite sure because it's very opaque, but um, now it's believed that there's less because um, Foxconn now has more sites um, around China. 
So they're not necessarily all clustered there, but there's a large number of employees um, in this factory uh, site. Um, and it would take nearly an hour to walk across the entire facility. So it's like a, it's like a proper city, you know. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so think of like um, like a city the with a population somewhere around like Hamilton, Ontario, like, and it's just an electronics company. Do the, do the workers live there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll go into more detail on this. So the Longwa plant, it's very secretive. Um, so it's, it's really hard to find out um, what's inside. But um, a journalist from The Guardian got in, um, and I'll just read a quote from that article. Security guards man each of the entry points. Employees can't get in without swiping an ID card. Drivers entering with delivery trucks are subject to fingerprint scans. A Reuters journalist was once dragged out of a car and beaten for taking photos from outside the factory walls. So it's very secretive. <laughs> they really don't want you getting inside. Um, and there have been really longstanding labor concerns at Foxconn factories. Um, so as I mentioned before, one of those most prominent of these was in 2010, when 18 employees attempted suicide by jumping off of the roof of the factory building. And uh, it's not, this isn't like the only time there have been issues at Foxconn. There have been a number of like protests that have happened. Um, workers have smuggled out like notes saying, help me from the factory into like products. Like there have been sort of several incidents, um, but this suicide cluster, you know, 18 people attempting suicide within a year drew pretty substantial international attention. Not all of them died. Uh, I think 11 did, but don't quote me on that number. That the ones that survived suffered like crippling injuries and basically can't work now. And, you know, there's not really good disability supports in China. So not a good situation for anybody. The suicides were really like linked to the conditions at the Longwant plant. And uh, there was an investigation that a Hong Kong based NGO called Students and Scholars Against Corporate Misbehavior. They looked at what was going on in the Foxconn facilities, and they found that workers were experiencing long working hours without overtime pay. They had to go to mandatory unpaid meetings. They were under constant surveillance. For making mistakes, people would be forced to publicly read statements of self-criticism. And this is actually one of the practices that was most tied to the suicides. There were also punishments such as fines for not meeting high hourly quotas, and there was a ban on conversation in the workplace. So most of these things aren't like um, without precedent, but they're characteristic of sweatshops, I would say. Um, I'll read another quote from that Guardian article because I think it's useful as well. Since the iPhone is such a compact, complex machine, putting one together correctly requires sprawling assembly, assembly lines of hundreds of people who build, inspect, test, and package each device. One worker said that 1,700 iPhones passed through her hands every day. She was in charge of wiping a special polish on the display. That works out to about three screens a minute for 12 hours a day. More meticulous work like fastening chipboards and assembling back covers was slower. These workers have a minute apiece for each iPhone. That's still 600 to 700 iPhones a day. Failing to meet a quota or making a mistake can draw public condemnation from superiors. Workers are often expected to stay silent and may draw rebukes from their bosses for asking to use the restroom. Like, if you think about that as what 
people's workdays are. And that wasn't to just sort of shame the iPhone, although definitely Apple um, should be pushing for better worker supports. There are a number of companies that buy from Foxconn. Um, I don't want us to get sued. But yeah, that's just to highlight like how many how many pieces people are handling in a day at these facilities, how like tight their quotas are, and um, how little freedom they have to speak to one another and to use the restroom. Another thing, you had asked whether people live in these facilities, and they do. Um, and that's another relevant dimension. Um, Foxconn workers are, they're typically migrants. I wasn't able to find from where, but I think it's primarily from other parts of China. And so Foxconn City is not only a workplace, but it's also where employees live. And that gives the company immense power over people. So workers will sleep in dormitories on the complex. They eat at the complex. Um, you know, they socialize the complex, their movie theaters and stuff, which is actually one of the things Steve Jobs highlighted to minimize the suicides issue when it happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> Steve Jobs was trash. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That yeah. is... Mm. So, so, like... There, there are like the facilities for people to live there, but it can actually be really isolating for workers because you're always on your work site, right? Tian Yu, um, a worker who attempted suicide, reported that her shifts were always being changed um, and her roommates were also from other parts of China. So she couldn't really understand what they were saying because there were different dialects. And that led to like an immense sense of isolation. You know, she was, um, she called the complex, quote, a massive place of strangers, which I think is um, really highlights what the experience is like. Tian Yu, um, she received no wages for her first month because of an administrative error. Um, and to fix that error, she had to take a bus to another factory of 130,000 people where she tried to get people and nobody would help her to locate her wage card. And shortly after that, her secondhand cell phone broke. And because she hadn't been paid, she couldn't afford to replace it because so, she had no money. She didn't know the people she was living with. Her family is like far away and she can't contact them with her phone. So she attempted suicide shortly after that. And she had only worked at the facility for 37 days. And she's like paralyzed now. So that's the rest of her life. Oh, I didn't think we would have an episode that was darker than clothing. Yet here we are. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's bad. Uh, and, you know, some workers report that like they don't that they haven't had as experiences that were this bad. I mean, not everybody has their wages withheld. Like that was an administrative error, although it did happen in several other cases that I had heard about. With one guy, he was threatening to jump several years after this incident happened for a similar issue. And eventually the company backed down and like actually helped him fix the administrative error. So he got his wages. It's yeah, it's, it's just a bad situation. Um, and you, as a worker on these facilities, have like no power because you have you don't have a government that's willing to intervene. You don't have the social capital from your community because you're isolated from your community, and you you live in like a an oppressive facility where bosses aren't there to support you, and they publicly like humiliate you for making errors, and that's like a a really effective means of punishment. So. After the suicides garnered some media attention, um, Foxconn did install nets on the roofs to... Um, <gasps> what? Yeah, that was their response. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, like, uh, yeah, it, that's not... Like, I guess that's fine, but you're kind of missing the point, Foxconn. They also forced workers to sign pledges that they wouldn't self-harm, which is also, I wow. think, missing the point in a big way. Wow. 
Yeah. So reporting suggests that there generally haven't been many meaningful improvements in the working conditions in the last decade. I, I that what you just described to me sounds like it belongs in like like a comedic science fiction book. Like like something Douglas Adams might have written. Yeah. As just like an absolute like ridiculous like situation that you've taken to the max and like oh this would never happen in real life so it's it's fine to write about but it's like no no that's what you just described to me is not that yeah the callousness of responding to eighteen people trying to take their lives by being like oh we installed net it's it's fine job done <laughs> holy shit Let's go make holy some more uh, cell phones sorry I just had to sit with that for a second <laughs> no it's all good. We're nearing the end of the human rights part of the episode. Um, I don't have a lot in terms of what you can do because um, we'll talk more about that in the next episode. But one option that I'm going to flag at several points in this series is you can buy a Fairphone. For pretty much every metric, Fairphone is like the best option that you have. Uh, Fairphone, it's a, created by a social enterprise that was trying to deal with um, the fucked up elements of the electronics industry. So if you need a new smartphone, one option is the Fairphone. It's a modular phone, um, which basically means that it's designed explicitly so you can repair and replace all the parts. And uh, the reason I don't have one yet is because previous iterations only worked in Europe, but their newest version now works everywhere in the world. So I'm definitely going to go with the all next time rad. I get a phone. Yeah. They've also mapped their entire supply chain to ensure that they source materials responsibly. We'll talk more about why that's important when we talk about conflict minerals. Um, but you can even imagine, you know, like understanding who your 750 suppliers are or wh whatever number it is, is it an important first step to understanding how ethical they are, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Fairphone is the only smartphone company that received a positive rating from Ethical Consumers Mobile Phones Guide. So... That's another option. If you go to Ethical Consumer, they've got several guides on which com which uh, like laptop companies might be the best for you, uh, which cell phone companies. I find they're often UK specific, but when it comes to electronics, because they're big global brands, um, it's really applicable even if you live in North America. So I would really recommend that. Uh, the other thing you can do is um, support companies that have strong supply chain traceability efforts and that have um, codes of conducts that they actually are holding companies to. Um, you can also use your voice to tell, um, you know, whatever phone or computer company you're going with um, that you want to see them improving their working conditions for subcontractors. That is human rights. How you feeling? I mean, shit. Like, <laughs> this Foxconn place sounds so horrible, and yet it's the third biggest employer on the planet, and, like, every major electronics company is buying from them. So, what do you do? Like, we need more, we need less of a monopoly here. We need more manufacturers <laughs> or something, right? Like, what what do you do about, like, something that, that that's that big? Because it's not like HP or or Intel could just like pull their manufacturing from there because there's nowhere else that could keep up with the level of product that they're putting out. Yeah. I don't know. It's really hard for me to disentangle in my mind because I generally like I I'm a globalist, you know, I, I think it's really good that we're interdependent around the world. But a lot of the issues with electronics comes down to the way our trade agreements are set up right now it really doesn't allow you to put in place any meaningful worker protections. 
And we're not really requiring companies. There's, there is more that countries could do unilaterally to require countries to make sure that like forced labor and child labor and stuff like that isn't happening. But we don't have laws like that right now. So the reality is just like, how do you even like you can't even get in a Foxconn facility? How do you assure that working conditions are, are good? The thing that's most fucked to me about Foc, uh, Foxconn is that it's also high tech. Like there's something in my mind that says like, you know, like a garment shop that's a sweatshop, like it's evil, but in a way that I comprehend um, because it's like, okay, yeah, if there was better capacity, you'd have more safety maybe and wages might be higher. But Foxconn is like high tech, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like a Google campus, but dystopian. <sighs> I guess a Google campus is also dystopian in a way. <laughs> But even more dystopian. <laughs> I, I, get what, I get what you're trying to say. I suppose, like, I mean, if you were imagining a better world where we could still have our electronics, because I don't know about you, but I am fully addicted to electronics. And yeah, I could learn to live without them. But I, in my perfect world, I'm imagining they're still there, you know? So I guess, like, these companies that are hoarding wealth at the top with their billionaire CEOs, if they were more equitable in how they distributed their funds, they could spend that money on having their own manufacturing like places, you know? So it's like instead of everyone sending to this one evil place so that they have no choice but to continue sending to them because nobody can keep up except for this evil place, you take care of your own stuff, you know, and you hire your own workers. Yeah, or there could be requirements that that like working conditions and wages were at an adequate level, or at least that people aren't like being exposed to toxic chemicals or whatever. And if you can like require big multinational companies, especially ones that are brand sensitive to report on that kind of stuff, you can, I think, get a lot of stuff done. And that's, I think, going to be the story of conflict minerals. I, mean, I don't want to like preview it too much, but supply chain transparency coupled with legislation actually works pretty well. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that more. But yeah, just the Foxconn thing. I'm just, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted that, that, that those sorts of horrible human rights abuses are happening and it's affecting like almost all electronics manufacturers. Like what? That's wild. Yeah. What do you do? Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, they employ almost as many people as Walmart. What the fuck? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe no single company should be that powerful, but it's, but if it wasn't evil, then I guess why not, right? Like, sure, let there be a city that belongs to this one company. As long as it's doing good, I guess that would be okay. But there's no example of that. Is it even possible? I don't know. Well, okay, there might be one example of it. I haven't looked into this case that directly, but Hershey seemed like it was a chocolate town that was actually fine for quite a period of time. They resisted capitalism in a big way, and they, it actually seemed like a pretty nice place to live. Listeners, please tell me if I'm, like, wrong about that. But. Yeah, I had a few. I, I don't know why, but I had a sense that the Hershey town was actually, like, really horrific. So uh, someone correct us. One of us has a, a very mistaken <laughs> view on this. The uh, Business Wars series that I listened to on this made me feel as though it was good, but maybe uh, maybe it's not. <laughs> but in all other cases, it's just dystopian and fucked. Like, you used to basically work in company towns when you were a coal miner. That was pretty fucked up, like... I mean, those tea plantations are another example. It's not generally good news when you have to live far away from your family on like company compounds. They have way too much power when that happens. I mean, speaking as someone who did do a contract on a cruise ship, that's not sounding completely unfamiliar when you describe it that way. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the working conditions you described there were horrific, so. (laughs) (laughs) I had it pretty good, too, so. But, okay, well, on that note, I am so invested in this research that you've done (laughs) and the story that you're telling. I am, like, riveted, so I'm super excited to do, what, three more episodes on this? Yeah! Most of the carbon emissions that come from things like smartphones, tablets, and computers are actually from like the manufacturing of uh, the products themselves rather than like their distribution use or end of life. So a lot of um, what we talk about in this episode is going to be focused on that. There are definitely ways to reduce your um, like your energy use when you're using a phone. I don't really talk about that. Everybody leaves all their devices on all the time anyway, but like, I guess if you turn off your computer and stuff, that's like, that's energy saving, you should do that. But that's also a lot more straightforward. So I'm going to focus more on where the big uh, environmental impact comes in, and that's from production itself. And that's because it's not just um, CO2 emissions. Producing electronics also involves really high levels of hazardous chemicals, um, and it also involves a lot of water use. So just to give you an example, the average computer uses about 240 kilograms of fuel, 22 kilograms of chemicals, and 1,500 liters of water to produce. Now, if you're talking about making a microchip, it requires 16,000 liters of water, 1.6 kilograms of fuel, and 0.7 kilograms of chemicals. So the, like, invisible footprint behind our goods is quite a lot. Why so much water? Are you going to tell us? <laughs> I'm not going to talk too much about water use, but um, but it, the short answer, I think, is just from mining. Mining takes a lot of water. Another way to think about the footprint of a product is to think about the volume of invisible waste that's created throughout the production process. And um, I have a couple of figures for that, too. So... Producing a typical smartphone requires about 86 kilograms of invisible waste. So if you think about how much a smartphone weighs and the fact that it's generating 86 kilograms of waste to create that, then think about a laptop and how much that weighs. And producing a typical laptop um, also generates 1,200 kilograms of invisible waste. So holy shit, holy shit. Yeah. And to put that in context, um, I mean... We shit on the beef industry a lot in this podcast, um, but the invisible waste of a kilogram of beef is only four kilograms of waste, so... Only, only, only four times as much as the actual end product, but... (laughs) Yeah, it's it's still a lot, but it's not as much as a laptop. Um, And a pair of cotton trousers produces about uh, 25 kilograms of waste, so these are much less than electronics. And you might be wondering... Why is the volume of invisible waste so high? Um, and the answer is uh, because of the waste produced in mining the raw materials. So going to talk about mining in the environment. That will be a lot of this episode. But we'll talk about e-waste and stuff too um, at the end. So um, mining, I suppose it won't be that surprising to anybody that mining is not great for the environment. Um, it also produces quite a lot of waste. So I thought it would be useful to talk a little bit about like what happens when you're creating, like if you're going to mine something, like what happens? Because to me anyway, that was pretty like mysterious, mysterious process, you know? So the first thing that you have to do if you're like looking at mining something is like you explore to see if the ore has anything in it. 
And this can actually be pretty harmful to the environment itself because um, you have to undertake like exploratory excavation. So you've got to dig stuff up or like drill into the ground. And you also have to clear um, areas of land to like bring heavy vehicles and stuff like that in. So you're already destroying some of the environment just to kind of check out if there's something that you want to dig up. But then if you decide you're going to create a mine, you have to develop the mine. And that involves like basically clearing the whole area um, of vegetation and things like that. And it can be quite a large area depending on the kind of mining that you're going to be doing. And um, you also have to clear area for roads and stuff like that. So then you start an actual mine, and there are a bunch of different types of mining, but I'll talk about two. Um, the first one is underground mining, which is, I think, kind of like what I think about when I think about mining, um, you know, like go underground into shafts and things like that. I don't know if that's what you think about, but... Yeah, I think about canaries, and also <laughs> I think about all of those like old-timey stories, like a little princess and stuff like that, where people are in the mining business, and that's how they make money, and it's like those old colonial age <laughs> stories. <laughs> not that we're not still in the colonial age, but you get it. Like, yeah. everyone had their hand in mines back in the day, so I think of it as like old-timey, even though it's obviously very much still a thing. Yes, Absolutely. So yeah, um, underground mining is the one with tunnels, um, and it's the one with canaries as well. Um, I don't know if they still use canaries, but it's, it's the one where canaries would be applicable. The other major type of mining I'm going to talk about is what's called open pit mining. And this is, I've written here, this is basically just digging a very big hole. <laughs> I'm sure people in the mining industry would tell me that it's much more complicated than that, but... If you see like quarries or whatever that are big pits, like that is open pit mining. It's well named. Um, <laughs> it, can, it can also be called surface mining. And the difference between those two, um, underground mining typically uh, doesn't produce as much of an environmental impact, um, although it depends on how well you operate it. Underground mines are also a lot more expensive, so companies don't like to do them, um, but they're sometimes necessary to reach like deeper deposits. If you're trying to mine something that's like shallower and less valuable, you're probably going to use an open pit mine um, because it's cheaper to just like dig a big hole than to create uh, like an extensive set of tunnels. Those are two of the main types. There are a couple of other types that are used, but not super often. So, or they didn't come up at all out in my research, so I don't want to talk about them too much. When we were talking about that like invisible waste, part of the reason for that is that most mining operations involve a huge quantity of just ordinary rock and soil that you have to remove in order to get to the kinds of um, ore that you actually want. Um, and that poses a bit of a problem environmentally because sometimes these like ordinary rocks contain pretty significant levels of toxic substances. And we'll talk about what happens with those a little bit later. But once you've actually gotten the ore out, um, the next thing you have to do is to actually grind it up and separate the metal from like other things that you don't want in a process that's called beneficiation. There was a lot of detail on how beneficiation works. I won't talk about it. But basically, depending on like how this process happens, um, it produces different kinds of waste products. Um, so could be like waste rock dumps. It could be leach materials. Um, or it could be something called tailings, which um, you and I are both from Alberta, so we've heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> so tailings are basically just like they're the waste, um, but you'll often see um, in Alberta, there are lots of tailings ponds around like um, petroleum areas. I'm sure it's true for mines as well. But basically, they like ponds with like toxic shit. Like they're just ponds with like leftover rock that you 
that you've separated from your ore. And it's really important because, um, like, the tailings can, like, really fuck up the environment, especially when it's in, like, a liquid form. You have to manage these tailings. Um, either you can store them in tailings ponds um, or you can dry the tailings and um, dispose of them as backfill. Or you can also dispose of tailings um, through a submarine process that I don't really understand. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are different processes to deal with tailings. Um, the best one is usually, um, is usually drying them out because the biggest problems that tailings cause are to do with like them leaking into the weight, like the water and the environment around them. And if they're dry, they don't do that as much, you know? So yeah, environmentally that's preferred, but uh, tailings ponds are a lot more common because they're cheaper. So you'll see a lot of tailings ponds. All right, then once you're done mining, once you've gotten all the stuff that you want, you have to close the mine. Um, and that's actually where most of the environmental impact can happen if you're not closing the mine responsibly. Because like once the mining company leaves, um, you can have a huge amount of impacts. So mining can be super wasteful depending on the method and the deposit. I'll just give you an example. If you're trying to get a single ounce of gold out of the earth, um, it can create up to 91 tons of waste. For one ounce of gold. Whoa. Yeah. And like that is on the higher end of the waste, but it, it gives you a sense of like, you're wasting a fuck ton of rock. Like if you're producing a little bit of this like valuable material that you want. So as you can imagine, like digging shit up from the ground entails environmental risks. <laughs> and it entails environmental risks of all kinds, <laughs> basically. So the first one is to water resources. So one thing is that once you've like excavated a bunch of the like rocks, um, if it rains and, it, and when oxygen is exposed to these materials, you can create acid, which is not good. And that acid in turn can start dissolving other contaminants and like letting loose other stuff that you don't want and forming this like acid drainage. <laughs> and that can have a huge impact because like just on its face that impacts water quality. But secondly, um, once you have that start to happen, it can continue basically indefinitely and it can be virtually impossible to stop. So, yeah, you don't want acid. At, like, generally, life does not like really acidic things. You know, it can fuck up fish. <laughs> it's not great for animals or humans. It can kill plants. And also toxic metals that will come in these like acid drainage. Um, it can contaminate streams and groundwater at like a really wide distance around. So it can cause huge impacts to the surrounding communities and ecosystems. Mining operations can also cause soil and sediment erosion. And when that erosion happens, it can also make surface water quality worse um, just because of that, um, you know, sediment going in there. And then tailings ponds, they can also contaminate groundwater and leach toxic substances. So this is especially a problem, like if you have tailings ponds, like they just kind of sit out there in the environment. And when rainfall is high, if... Um, if they flood, basically, it can create really bad environmental consequences. So in short, there are lots of ways that mining can fuck up the water around mines. Mines also fuck up air quality, uh, not surprisingly. So the first way that this happens is like, I don't know, when you're building a mine, you're like digging and exploding shit, <laughs> transporting stuff. You're, you're really disturbing the earth and that brings particulates into the air. And a lot of that stuff is toxic, and so it can be really bad for air pollution um, around. We mentioned in the first part that the main source of mercury pollution is gold mining, and that's that process that causes it. 
gas emissions um, from fuel combustion, from the things that produce those explosions, and also from mineral processing can also contribute to air pollution. So there's a lot of ways that mines can also cause air pollution. Then there are other environmental impacts. So um, mining, and especially open pit mining, it involves the destruction of habitats, which can significantly impact wildlife and ecosystems. So if you're clearing like an area of rainforest, you might be really threatening like local gorilla populations or something like that. And even if you're not, you're maybe disturbing local communities, you're maybe disturbing, um, you know, birds and other kinds of animals that are in the area and plant life. Uh, mining can also contaminate the soil in the surrounding area, which can, um, I mean, first of all, bad for the soil, but secondly, can also cause harm to nearby farmers. And especially in communities where people are subsistence farming, that can be a huge issue as well. I've also just written climate change on here because <laughs> mining is also energy intensive. Um, another thing to keep note of, um, this isn't something that happens in electronics um, raw material production yet, but is likely to start in the next three to five years, is something called deep sea mining. And it's what it sounds like. And that would be really bad um, because we really don't even know yet what is like in the deep sea. Um, every time scientists look there, they find a bunch of new species. And uh, deep sea mining could irreparably destroy these ecosystems as well. So it's not awesome. Would it be worse than bottom trawling or is it kind of the same problem? Wow, they're both bad. It's so hard to answer this question. Um, I don't know <laughs> a lot about deep sea mining, but my my instinct is if there was like a problem with deep sea mining, like if there was, um, if it was not managed well, it could be much worse than bottom trawling. But I don't know. It's an interesting question though. So the other thing I want to talk about um, is, so you have mining where you're taking stuff out of the ground, but you also have to refine it to make it into something useful. And with rare earths, that process creates um, toxic and radioactive waste, which is always the thing you want to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically because, um, if you'll remember from last episode, we talked about rare earth minerals. They're like a collection of 17 substances that are really useful for doing everything from making your phone vibrate to creating pretty colors and screens and things like that. Rare earth minerals always occur alongside the radioactive elements thorium and uranium, and it's really complicated to actually separate them safely. Radioactive waste is a huge problem. I want to read an article, um, an excerpt from an article from Mother Jones, because I think they explain it better than I could. Miners use heavy machinery to reach the raw ore, which contains anywhere between 3 and 9% rare earths, depending on the deposit. And then the ore is taken to a refinery and cracked, which is a process where workers use sulfuric acid to make a liquid stew of sorts. The process is also hugely water and energy intensive, requiring a continuous 49 megawatts, um, which is enough to power 50,000 homes and two Olympic swimming pools worth of water every day. Workers then boil off the liquid and separate out the rare earths from rock and radioactive elements. This is where things get dangerous. Oh, Companies must oh. take precautions. <laughs> Companies must take precautions so that workers aren't exposed to radiation. If the tailing ponds where the radioactive elements aren't properly permanently stored um, are improperly lined, then they can leach into the groundwater. And if they're not covered properly, the slurry could dry and escape as dust. And this radioactive waste must be stored for an incomprehensibly long time. 
The half-life of thorium is about 14 billion years, and uraniums is up to 4.5 billion years. Reminder, Earth itself is 4.5 billion years old. So yeah, radioactive waste, it's hard to deal with. <laughs> Could we like do that Futurama episode where we just blast something into the sun? Would that be a good way to get rid of it? <laughs> I've made that suggestion before, and the answer was no, but this is a different one, so can we blast this into the sun? I have to assume no, but I don't know. <laughs> what was just described there is like this incredibly dangerous and complicated process that has huge implications if you fuck it up. So you'll be really happy to hear that in many places where rare earth refining occurs, environmental laws are weak and poorly enforced which allows companies to process these elements on the cheap. <laughs> That's definitely what you want when there's radioactive stuff involved. <laughs> oh, I don't like this story at all, Kristen. <laughs> so yeah, um, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, most of China's rare earth mines are clustered around the Baotu region of Inner Mongolia. And uh, communities around one mine blame at least 66 cancer deaths on leaked radioactive waste. And locals frequently complain of hair and teeth falling out. That's like a regular nightmare for most people. Yeah. Another example is the former Mitsubishi chemical refinery in Bukit Marah, um, which is in Malaysia. And I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly. I'm sorry. And it was run by a subsidiary of Mitsubishi. So this is like, I had never heard of this before, but um, it was because Mitsubishi sort of like quietly closed the refinery. But villagers there blamed the mine for birth defects and eight leukemia deaths. Um, and they, activism in the 90s convinced Mitsubishi to close the factory and to spend about $100 million cleaning up the mine site. It must have been real bad if yeah. they were willing to... It must have been real bad. To like shell out and do the right thing and shut it down. Like, I can't even imagine... Because most companies will let a lot of stuff slide. So for them to go ahead and shut that down, I'm like, wow, like it must not have been good at all. Yeah. And actually in 2010, um, a local newspaper went to the dump site and they found 80,000 drums containing 4.2 million gallons of, gallons of thorium hydroxide, which is a radioactive substance. So yeah, it's not great. So the mine site there is closed, but nothing ever changes because there's an Australian mining company called uh, Linas uh, that has opened a refinery in a nearby town in Malaysia. So the process starts once more. They claim that they have better safety regulations, but I don't know how much stock I put in that. So China actually controls 80% of the global output of rare earth elements, um, which is another part of the issue. And I had mentioned in the first episode that um, they initially thought rare earth elements were rare um, and now have found that they're not so much. And uh, actually, in, until the 1990s, there was only one mine that, um, that processed uh, rare earth elements uh, in the entire world. And it was called the Mountain Pass Mine, and it existed in California. I think this is kind of an interesting story, and it tells you um, like the connection between globalization and the environment. Because Mountain Pass was opened in the 50s, and it was for a long time the only rare earths element uh, mine in the world. But it had to close in 2002 because environmental regulations made um, American rare earths more expensive than those that were mined elsewhere. And there was actually an attempt to revive the Mountain Pass mine. It was this whole, like, you know, revive American industry kind of initiative starting in 2008. 
Um, but the company that started it ran into financial difficulties, and ultimately the mine was sold to a Chinese-backed consortium in 2014. What? <laughs> yeah. So Mountain Pass still exists, but it's all of the minerals there are exported for processing in China now. Globalization. <laughs> well, that backfired heavily. Yeah. But it was like really the mine closed because environmental regulations, which are a great thing, um, like if you're actually protecting the environment at these mine sites, which they're not doing in many places around the world because um, you know the laws aren't stringent enough, which is understandable in like a developing country where um, you know there's not a lot of state capacity or like there's a lot of pressure that can come from big mining companies because you want to be able to provide jobs for people. Like it's an understandable problem, but uh, it really makes it impossible to to run an environmental mine. Um, and that's something that we as a society need to fix. So yeah, mining is real bad for the environment and there's radioactive waste everywhere. <laughs> is the first half of this episode. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about e-waste. So e-waste is also called electronic waste, um, and we produce a lot of it. So according to the UN, uh, we have produced approximately 54 million tons of e-waste in 2019, which is, to me, just an incomprehensibly high number. Like, I thought you were going to say <laughs> in the last, like, 10 years or since no, the beginning last year. of... No, last year. Oh, ah! I, I thought it was going to be since we started producing e-waste. <laughs> ah! I know, and uh, that figure is set to double by 2050, so like annually we'll be producing over 100 million tons of e-waste a year if we don't get our shit together. Is there even the ability for us to manufacture that much e-waste to be discarded? Like, surely at some point we have to start recycling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One would hope. But yeah, up to, uh, up to 90, or we can just start mining the seas, which is apparently what we're going to do instead, but... Ah! Ah. So yeah, up to 90% of the world's e-waste is illegally dumped or traded according to uh, the UN Environment Program. So like it's not it's not getting responsibly disposed of. And the e-waste problem has two intersecting causes and we're going to talk about both of them. So the first is the short lifespan of electronics, which means that we're throwing out a lot of electronics. And related to that, the fact that we don't recycle most electronics. So if we fixed either of those problems, it would get a lot better. Um, ideally, we should fix both. So let's talk about the short lifespan of electronics. Consumer electronics are geared towards basically selling us products that we have to replace every couple of years rather than providing something that's meant to last. This isn't something I think that will be new to anybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but many electronics are designed to be unfixable. They're made really difficult to open. If you are able to open it, components are often like either glued or fused together. And they now actually like incorporate different components together. So it's really hard to replace an individual component because, oh God, I don't know what's in computers, but like your motherboard is also this other thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> Laptops are especially bad for that. Everything is soldered together. So if you're building a computer like a desktop, it's a lot easier to replace like, oh, my video card died. I'll get another one. Or, oh, my hard drive needs to be replaced. But in a laptop, part of the problem is that everyone wants thin, lightweight computers. 
And it's like, it's not just that the manufacturers want to like screw the little guy. It's also because the little guy wants things that are, they must be designed in such a way that it will only fit together if you like glue these pieces together. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's one of the things, um, we'll talk a little bit about the fair phone at the end. We talked about it a bit last episode, but it's a slightly bulkier phone because it's meant to have everything be replaceable. Whereas like if you get, you know, one of your standard smartphones today, they're going to be a little lighter. So yeah, the, the smartphone is like one of the clearest examples of how replaceable electronics are. Um, the average portable electronic device is only like only lasts for two years with smartphones. Um, the incentives are built right in with your mobile phone company. You know, you're invited to upgrade every couple years. Um, it's one of your incentives when you're, you know, with a phone program. And that really sort of enforces this idea that it's disposable. And it also makes it really difficult for phone uh, companies to sign on to sustainability initiatives because there's not that direct consumer demand because consumers don't even purchase from the uh, producer. So it's really like what the mobile phone like the telecoms company cares about. And I mean, I think Bell just wants to watch the world burn personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I would agree with that. I would also say that technology keeps improving at a, at, at a rate that we haven't, like maybe we've seen it peak now, I don't know. But it also makes it, it means that, oh, my phone that I got three years ago doesn't have 5G capability. So if I want my phone to be usable, like, it used to be like, oh, you'd go visit a website, and every time you visit a website, the website is is heavier. It's like bigger. Your phone has a harder time loading everything. So you need the the phones. Well, you don't need, but it does make your life a lot better if you get the phone that has the capability of loading that website or taking that picture, you know? Like the camera in my phone now compared to the camera in my phone, what, six years ago? There's no comparison. It's <laughs> so I don't know, like we need to hit peak technology as well. And I don't know if like maybe they're throttling technology on purpose to keep you upgrading or what? I don't. I genuinely don't know. But Yeah, I don't know. Or you could have like a, a modular system where, you know, if you wanted your, if you needed your camera to be better in five years or something, you could just replace the camera or something. But yeah, yeah, totally. On the other hand, like I'm kind of okay with not having the latest everything, you know, like if the website loads slightly slower, that's fine. Like I got a an older refurbished iPhone and they were like, well, you're not going to be able to get facial recognition. And I'm like, that's okay. I don't need to open my <laughs> iPhone with my face. That's fine with me. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's actively a thing I don't want. <laughs> like for me, the last time I upgraded, I got a phone that had a significantly better camera because I was about to go traveling for a year or so. That was kind of an important thing for me. I was like, oh, I can't bring a bulky camera. I, I, what, what I can do is my old phone is really slow and has a shitty camera. So the motive for me to upgrade was there. Whereas now my phone is a little bit slower, but I'm not about to do anything different with it. So I'm okay waiting for that website for an extra half a second, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right that like technology is changing and better features, like people want the best features and that's probably part of it. But I think it's also coming from the industry side as well. Absolutely. It's just a lot of things at play here that make it really complicated. Yeah. There's also like a pretty common practice of um, making warranties conditional on using like in-house repair services, which I just today realized is 
at least in the United States, illegal. I would imagine we usually have similar laws, so <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize that that wasn't allowed. But uh, yeah, that's a thing that companies will do. And then there's a planned obsolescence itself, which is sort of the more egregious version of what we've been talking about. So deliberately designing products to fail prematurely or to become out of date with the aim of selling another product or an upgrade. So Apple and Samsung in 2018 were both fined for that. I think the next big thing is going to be 5G and it'll be, it might end up being- Well, I already have it. I got faxed. Oh yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I don't know. Does it like switch on when I get my second shot? Because I'm still waiting on that. (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted you though. The next thing's 5G. It might it might be the case where your old technology simply won't work with the new the new product that's coming out that'll be standard, you know? So it's like, okay, well, I would love to use this burner phone for my shady activities, but it literally cannot connect to the current networks. I don't know. Like it's it's all changing so quickly. So please let's hit peak technology so that we can start fixing the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the peak technology thing, we can't really the arc of technology is going to do what it's going to do, um, but what we can <laughs> fix is um, we can implement the right to repair. And so there's been this whole movement around the right to repair in response to this short lifespan of consumer electronics and the planned obsolescence and things like that. The right to repair is fundamentally about giving consumers a choice. So um, the first bit is allowing consumers uh, their choice of repairer, and the second bit is ensuring that there's access to replacement parts, as well as information to maintain existing devices. So one thing that you can do, I, a lot of what we've talked about so far in these two episodes is like, oh yeah, all the companies are fucked because mining is bad and also Foxconn produces everything. But <laughs> you can actually you can actually choose uh, companies that support a right to repair and one option that you have is uh, there's a, a nonprofit called iFixit. They're really cool. Uh, so they, they do a couple of things. One of them is they have a website. Uh, it's a wiki. So like people, it's like crowd uh, contributed. People basically provide free repair tutorials on a range of products. So a lot of them are repair guides for electronics and appliances. But you can also find guides on like repairing clothing, shoes, kitchenware, and furniture. So I really recommend them. They're a good hub for things. You can also, I mean, YouTube's problematic, but they do have a lot of like do-it-yourself repairs. You can also choose companies that are either that support the right to repair um, or that aren't vocal opponents of the right to repair movement. Apple is probably sort of one of the biggest uh, problem children of the right to repair. They've actually done a lot recently um, in terms of like the environmental impact of e-waste, like introducing recycling programs and stuff, but they're doing it with um, their in-house repair as like the cornerstone of it. So very much not on board with this whole right to repair thing. Whereas like Microsoft seems to be moving in the other direction. But I find this really complicated because I mean, we're not going to talk about privacy in this episode because... uh... No, I was just thinking that though, (laughs) because like we're going to be really hard on Apple here, but I was actually considering switching to iPhone products the next time I'm forced to upgrade because of the privacy thing that's happening right now, where they're really taking a hard stand on letting people own their own identities, as opposed to every other company out there that's like, no, um, we, we own you. And it's like, oh, I mean, that's, t- I guess there's nothing I can do except switch to Apple. But then there's this right to repair issue. I know that's, that's one of the things that's really complicated for me, because um, 
So I love the idea of Fairphone. I'm so on board with it. And I think I probably will switch to them next time. But the one drawback for me is that they run on Android. And I don't know, I kind of I kind of like Apple's commitment to privacy. I don't know. It's very complicated for me. <laughs> I'm sure it is for everybody. So I like everybody's got their very specific things that they're looking for in technology. But one of the things you can build into this, I think, is um, how are they on the right to repair? And even if you're not going to switch, you can maybe like contact the company and say that you, you'd appreciate being able to repair from a third-party retailer or that you would like it if they didn't like glue all their components together so you could easily replace the battery. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like how at no point in this conversation is the solution ever mm, just go cold turkey and don't use electronics because they're so ingrained to our society and the world in general that it's not even conceivable for us to offer that, even though it's obviously the most ethical solution. I don't know about that. I don't know what I would do without technology. Like, my work is entirely on my computer, uh, which is nice. I can go anywhere I want to and still be working. My screen time in a day, I don't even know what it is because <laughs> I only get reporting on like individual pieces, but like. <laughs> you don't want to think about it. That's what I tell myself. Yeah, I remember years ago uh, going to an optometrist and uh, they like ask how many hours of screen time I had. And at the time, like, I think I sort of sheepishly said like four hours or something like that, knowing that it was actually <laughs> higher. But today, if I went, it's like, well, how many hours am I awake in a day? I'm looking at a screen most of the time. <laughs> well, in the last year, especially, like I think people, uh, I, I was seeing, I think I've mentioned this before, but there's statistics at the place where I work that show that the the pandemic launched the online shopping industry and technology in general forward by like 10 years just for usage because people were forced to do everything from home. And it just took that usership that they were expecting for these online technologies and services. And it just vaulted them a decade into the future. And so companies have been scrambling to catch up and the companies that can are going to be the ones that survive this downturn, which is why my company has been really explaining that to us constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this has been a great year for Canadian darling Shopify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's just really interesting because we're talking about all of these issues and at no point is it even feasible for us in the current way that we're living our lives to, to, to be like, abstain. <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, it's the same way with like when we were talking about the sugar episode, like you just can't opt out of it. Um, so you just have to do the best you can. What you can do, though, and we'll talk more about like what you can do, but like use your voice um, either by picking a company that supports a right to repair or vocalizing that you you want a right to repair or also like going rogue and repairing on your own, which you can do. Um, and uh, there are resources out, resources out there like iFixit to help you. Those are things that you can do to extend the life of your your device so you don't need to replace as often and to sort of like retain some control over what you're doing. The other thing that you can do is support legislation on right to repair. That's something that's a conversation in a lot of countries right now. I think the EU actually just implemented it. So the EU is always just always ahead of us on everything. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid EU making us look bad. <laughs> All right, let's talk about e-waste recycling, um, which is the second half of that problem. So first problem is that we're replacing stuff way too much. Second problem is that we're not recycling things. 
So recycling rates are pretty low for electronics, only about 25% of electronics of any kind and only 11% of phones um, are collected for recycling. And only about 17% of electronics are actually recycled. So there's not like the same problem of electronics. Well, it's not on the same scale where like in plastics, like there's a lot of stuff being collected, but most of it's not being recycled. Here, the problem is like predominantly that people aren't even collecting electronics for recycling. But there is also a problem of what happens when they do get collected in some cases. Um, I'll also note those rare earth minerals uh, that are produced with radioactive waste. They are actually recyclable, but only about 1% currently are being recycled. So there's like a potential to really fix that problem. As we discussed in our very first episode of this podcast, e-waste represents an estimated $55 billion in value, in value annually, because um, like these are actually really valuable metals and minerals that are in our electronic devices. You know, it's like gold and stuff. Recycling e-waste potentially could be very lucrative. So the question becomes sort of like, why doesn't it happen more? And the reason is basically, I mean, first of all, that we're not sending a lot of it to collection. And secondly, that recycling electronics is notoriously dangerous. Um, so because of those toxic materials that cause problems when you're mining and manufacturing electronics, uh, that also causes problems when you're recycling them. So it's actually pretty expensive to do it safely and humanely. I think we should make it such that like companies have to recycle. So like you have to do it safely and humanely and it becomes feasible economically. But for now, what ends up happening a fair amount of the time, about a third of the time in the United States and about 16% of the time in Canada, the electronics that are recycling, uh, collected for recycling, um, they get exported uh, mostly to Asia through e-waste smuggling and e-waste dumping. Uh, and that's a an industry that's worth an estimated just under $4 billion annually. So it's like, it's huge. And actually one of the top five most profitable organized crime rackets in Asia is like e-waste recycling. Holy shit. Holy <laughs> yeah. shit. So it used to be a few years ago that um, if you were looking at e-waste smuggling, it was basically just going to China. Now the story is a little bit more complicated uh, because the Chinese government has increased its enforcement and regulation. So that's like slightly good news, but uh, the practice is now moving to other Asian countries. And uh, informal e-waste recycling, which is sort of like the nicer term for it, um, it mostly occurs in poor communities where workers with no protective equipment are picking apart electronics by hand. And so basically they're like removing, they'll remove the important plastics and metals and then they'll melt them together and that process releases a bunch of toxins into the air. And then they burn the leftovers, which again creates even more airborne toxins. Informal e-waste recycling, it can cause huge health problems for workers and also people in surrounding communities. To give you just one example, um, in the Chinese city of Gaiyu, uh, children were found to have higher than average levels of lead in their blood. And that was because recycling was a huge industry there. And it was not being done safely and environmentally soundly. I um I assume a solution to this wouldn't be just making companies have to be responsible for the end life of their products. Yeah, I think that is one uh, like one way to do it. I don't know a lot about the legislation, so I'm hoping we can talk to somebody that's more of an expert on that. But uh, I know in some Canadian provinces, one thing they do is they force um, 
like a small fee for every um, like electronic piece that falls in like certain categories and that's supposed to go towards recycling collection. There's also some U.S. states that have required e-waste recycling. I'm not sure what that legislation actually looks like, but that's definitely like a thing that governments could do. Just like with plastics pollution, like put the onus for end of life on the companies instead of on the individuals. That's one solution for sure. Sorry for interrupting you. I'm just like so <laughs> flabbergasted and like, what can we do? But I'm like getting ahead of it. <laughs> well, actually, no, the next thing I've written down is what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I can just read right your mind time. now, I guess. <laughs> um, so the first thing that you can do is extend the life of your products. So if everyone kept their phone for an extra year, we could save 2.1 million tons of carbon dioxide every year which would be the equivalent of keeping a million cars off the roads. So, mm. Well, how long do people keep their phones on average? I think it's about two years. So if everyone kept their phones for three years, we could reduce that. And then if you kept another year after that, if we could keep our phones for five years, ooh, why don't we push it? Let's hit peak technology and just keep our phones for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Um, So, yeah, you could keep your try to keep your products for as long as you can. Um, One way to do that is when you're buying electronics, uh, look for durability and repairability when you're trying to decide. Um, And then once you have like chosen your electronic, try to extend its lifespan by repairing or replacing components when they break. That iFixit uh, website is a good example of a tool you can use for that. You can also, um, many cities will have repair cafes, um, or there will be organizations that host repair events. So you can get involved with one of those. In the UK, the Restart Project is a good organization. Um, And you can also take your device to an independent repair shop. Um, Or if you're, you're, uh, whatever your device is through a company that has like repair options, um, you can do that too. And yeah, you can try fixing it yourself using the tutorials if you want. Uh, So let's say you've extended the life of your device for as long as you can, but you need to get a new one. Um, You can try to go with a secondhand or refurbished electronic. So um, there are some issues around this because they're they're built to be so short-term in a lot of cases. So if you're buying a secondhand smartphone, uh, one advice piece of advice that I saw was to pick a model that has come out within the last three years to ensure a good battery life, which was advice that made me sad, but... <laughs> it kind of defeats the purpose because you're only picking up that phone that's two years old because someone else went and got a new one. So kind of perpetuates the issue. It does, but you're still extending the life a little bit. So, you know, that works. Um, or you could pick like a, a model. If you if you are willing to go to a flip phone, like a non-smartphone, um, those actually last a lot longer. You know, like you could get one of those like old school Motorola's and <laughs> do you for like 20 years. Um, so that's one option. Kristen, I feel like this, this ask that you've just made, along with reusable toilet paper, might be one of the very few things on our show that I will never be ready for. <laughs> I am fully addicted to my phone. Okay, listeners, you have to choose um, reusable toilet paper, handkerchief, or flip phone. <laughs> one of the three. <laughs> no, it's definitely hard. So, um, like, we're stuck with the industry that we have to a certain extent. Um, so, you know, exercise your voice. 
If you are buying secondhand, just bear in mind that the battery life might suck if you're getting something that's older than three years in a phone. If you're looking for a refurbished laptop or desktop, oftentimes you can get one that's older, but um, I would like do some research on this um, because the guides that we're looking at the suggestions were complicated. <laughs> so, um, you know, you should do some research on the individual products you're looking at. Um, you can also, uh, there's an ethical consumer guide that we'll link to in the research notes on how to buy secondhand technology to help you. Okay, so let's say you've extended the life the lifespan of your phone. You don't want to buy used or refurbished um, for whatever reason. The other thing you can do is support leading brands. So if you are buying new, choose a company that's a leader on ethical issues that matter to you. Um, some of the things you might want to think about. First one is supply chain transparency. So that'd be questions like, do they publish a list of suppliers on their website? You should be able to find that. Do they have a supplier code of conduct on their website? And how robust is it? Like, are they doing audits and things like that? If they don't have any of that on their website, it's a sign that they are not doing super well on uh, supply chain ethics. End of life. Uh, does this company take responsibility for the product at its end of life? Can you bring it back to them and they'll do something with it when you're done with it? Um, do they have an e-waste recycling program and how good is it? Conflict minerals, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, are they doing due diligence to make sure that their, that their minerals are not coming from conflict zones? Um, are they actively involved in conflict-free initiatives in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Another issue that you might care about that you might want to look at is tax justice. Is this company paying their fair share of tax? At this point, you might wonder, is there any company that I can buy from? But you do your <laughs> it's best. It's like you were reading my mind. I was like waiting for a pause so I could be like, mm, <laughs> this doesn't sound like, this sounds like a fantasy, Kristen. Stop, uh, <laughs> stop pretending. I was going to say there are some companies that are doing fairly well on all of these things until you get to tax justice. Oh, God. The <laughs> but no, um, like there are relative leaders and laggards in each section. So, you know, balance it against what you care about most. It's quite the wish list. Yeah. And the last one, if we're doing a <laughs> wish list, um, the one that we cannot forget is climate change. Does this company <laughs> have a carbon neutrality target? Do they ensure... Do they actually have a concrete plan to get to carbon neutrality? And is it like carbon neutrality plans are not great if all they're based on is carbon offsets, because as we told you in that episode, carbon offsets are kind of a scam. <laughs> and do these companies actually measure their carbon as well? Because that's a really important um, first step if you're going to try to get to net neutral. All right. So those are some things you can think about. I'm sure there are more. Oh, actually, one one example that was good. I came across a couple of uh, ethical rankings and BlackBerry kept rating highly on them. But it was kind of funny because um, the like one X that BlackBerry had for the good shoppers guide was like armaments. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> oh my sure God. they do that. But that might be like the single thing you really don't want them to be involved with. So it might matter for you. <laughs> What are they? What you know? What that's a whole other thing. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. So for smartphones, uh, Fairphone is like there's actually like a super straightforward answer for you, unless you include privacy and and, and uh, the fact that it's on Android. But if you if you take that away, Fairphone is clearly the best smartphone that you can purchase. Um, they do a really good job with supply chain traceability. Um, they're like involved in conflict free initiatives. They are super pro repairability. That's like their whole thing. 
and they're they're always trying to improve as much as they can. So Fairphone is a really good option. Um, the only downside is that it's operating system. I mean, I don't really know how you get around this. Like you either are okay with Android or you're not, you know. I, I think that there might be a way to get like maybe a hacked version of iPhone <laughs> onto it, but that would be oh huge pain in the ass and probably mess up quite a bit of your functionality unless you're really good at this sort of thing. I don't know. Tweet us if you know the answer to that. I am really bad at software. I'm more of a hardware person. Yeah, and I don't even really know. Like, you're stuck with a big company either way, right? Like, there are basically just the two operating systems, aren't there? Microsoft has an operating system because, of course, they do. Uh, and also, <laughs> you can still get, I think you can still get, like, a Linux-based system, but I can't remember what it's called for phones. But I'm sure that there is like a Linux-based version, which maybe would be the most ethical if you could get that on your Fairphone. I don't know. Again, I cannot stress how little I know about software. So at us if you'd like to inform me because I am super curious. I just don't care enough to learn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It seemed like way too much to bring into this episode. So I didn't do any research and... Quite frankly, I am the closest thing there can be to a Luddite in today's society. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can look at different ethical ratings. Um, Good Shopping Guide is one example, and Ethical Consumer is another um, to help you make your decision. Know the Chain is also an organization that looks at um, supply chain behavior around uh, forced labor. So you can look at their information technology um, section on, on their website if you're curious about that as well. All right. Um, so let's say you've got your device um, and you're trying to figure out what to do with it because it is now dead. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, if your electronics are still working, um, first of all, consider if you could just keep using it for a little longer by repairing it or by just, you know, dealing with the fact that a certain feature isn't maybe as good as you'd like. But if you're really not okay with it for whatever reason, um, consider either selling it or giving it to somebody that you know so that you can extend the use of that product. If you can still turn on your device, um, if it's a smartphone, you can send it into Fairphone regardless of what kind it is. I swear this isn't just an advertisement for Fairphone. They're just really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had an affiliate program with them. We would get so much money from this episode. <laughs> I know, mentioned them so much. But no, like any type of phone you have, if, as long as it still turns on, you can send it to Fairphone and they'll give you a discount. Um, so that's pretty cool. Other companies have similar programs, but it's usually only like um, Apple to Apple or like Microsoft to Microsoft or whatever. So look into that, like whether your company that produced your product has an in-house recycling program. Sometimes they'll also give you a, a discount on new items. Um, and you can also look for electronic recycling programs. Uh, sometimes your municipality might run them. So look at to see if there's a government one. There are often community ones as well. Um, in some places, Oxfam will recycle e-waste. In some cases, zoos will recover e-waste. Um, so it really depends on what community you're in, but just uh, give it a few searches and you'll eventually find one. The last thing that you can do, as we always say, is get political. So you can ask for right to repair legislation. Um, I'll link to some petitions for all of these things on our research note. Um, you can also support legislation that requires manufacturers to recycle e-waste. Another thing you can do is to ask your government to join the Basel Ban Amendment. 
And it basically would ban the export of hazardous e-waste to developing countries. So you'd be able to help get rid of that e-waste dumping problem that is causing health conditions in several different places. And you can also sign a petition calling for a moratorium to ban deep sea mining because we should really stop that problem before it starts. <laughs> and that is, I think, it for me. Um, uh... I think the most upsetting thing for me about electronics is that there's nothing you can do about it, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like with yeah. clothing, like there's a really simple solution. Like you just kind of disengage from fast fashion. You can kind of slowly do that. Thrift stores are super easy. You know, pants are pants, right? <laughs> yeah. They fundamentally do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, like with the seafood industry, you could stop eating seafood. But there's no way for me personally anyways to disengage from the electronics industry. Like I can buy less, I can extend the life of my product, but in the end there's no way I can just go cold turkey. Yeah, and like if you were going to, like even building your own desktop computer requires so much more knowledge than buying a pair of pants at a thrift store, you know? Yeah, and I mean, even building a but building that desktop is still rife with all of the issues that you've already talked about. So it's not even like that's a solution, except for the fact that you don't have to throw the whole thing away when one thing breaks. But there's been so many issues we've talked about in these two episodes that it's like, <laughs> well, okay, I guess one thing out of a thousand is better than nothing, but it's not a solution. Yeah. So like, I mean, I guess there like there are small things you can do. You know, you can build your own desktop to make sure that your computer is repairable. You can, you can just deal with your phone for slightly longer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's all those things that you just talked about, especially the legislation. But yeah, ultimately, it's not an industry you can disengage from, which is, I think, what makes it almost unique in when it comes to the worst things we've talked about. Yeah, it's a combination of impossible to disengage from, which is like true of some other things. Like, you know, food is very difficult to disengage from, especially the staples. <laughs> but like, it's it's easy to understand what a tomato is fundamentally. It is not easy to understand what the fuck is in a computer, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it just, I think it just makes it a one level more difficult to dis, like, I guess you can't disengage, but to like, engage in a more responsible way, because it's not as though, it's not as though I could even if I had a repairable computer, I would have to go to somebody smarter than me or follow a tutorial to fix something, you know? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's big. Uh, thank you so much for tackling this topic. I cannot tell you how interesting this has been for me. Like, I, I know that it, I've, I've been, I was just like, oh, it's more upsetting than anything else we've done. But it's also, honestly, I think this is one of the most interesting ones we've done for, for me personally anyways. Yeah, I had a good time. Um, I'm upset about mining, but... <laughs> Yeah, I'm upset about basically everything, but I was really, like, captivated the whole time. So thank you for being my professor on this one. <laughs> I feel like I was taking an <laughs> online class that I was just like, I was like, oh, I should be taking notes. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, no, you did a really good job, and I am excited to explore further. I know that you originally wanted to do just one episode for this, and it just turned out to be, like, way too big. So thank you for taking on that extra work and making this a bit a mini series because I, I think it's important to talk about. So Aww, appreciate thanks. you. <laughs> and next episode, we're going to have a fun story about activism and conflict minerals, which I think will be relatively optimistic. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, um, I guess maybe we should just take a second to talk about our challenges, which was to try and recycle some electronics. Did that work out for you? Did you do it? No. 
(laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I was so swamped with research that uh, I did not even get to it, but... I mean, fair. I did do it, so I can carry us a little bit, um, finally. (laughs) I... I rounded up a bunch of electronics from work, including like an old, really big router um, and server and stuff. And like, yeah, we just had to upgrade everything. We really did have to upgrade everything. It was from like the early 2000s and it was very painful (laughs) to do anything. But I took all of those things from work, plus a few things I had lying around at home, like cables that don't work anymore, um, stuff like that. And I took them to the recycling center in Vancouver and I dropped them off there. What happens to them now, I couldn't possibly say. So whether or not it was the right thing to do, I don't know. It was kind of a pain in the ass, so I understand why. I don't know. Just I feel like I don't know what would be more convenient. I know that London Drugs takes some electronics recycling at some locations, so I did drop off some things there. They take, like, appliances and batteries and light bulbs, but it's like, oh, God, it's like a thing to recycle them. It's It's not as easy as just putting out the trash, you know? It's true, yeah. I would really like it if um I know some some like apartment buildings do this. I think it's like individuals organizing it, but like where you have the really separated recycling. Our building we separate like plastics and paper products and compost. Obviously, it'd be weird if you put compost in the things. Um, but <laughs> But like we don't do anything beyond that. Um, it'd be nice to be able to put like I have batteries that I, they just sit in a tin can because I haven't figured out where to take them yet. Should be easier. We're going to do a recycling episode at some point. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> and I'm going to try to find somebody who's an expert on e-waste to talk to um, so that we can get like I really tried to find out like how do you tell whether you're recycling well with e-waste and I just couldn't find anything on it. So hopefully. We'll be able to find somebody that can tell people some good tips. If you're an expert on e-waste, please hit us up. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to know more personally. I know I would. You won't be e-wasting our time. (laughs) Okay. Well, on that note, uh, (laughs) thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) I think I've just been canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate you for making it to the end. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And we'll catch you on the next episode.